0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Former Vice President Al Gore is in Denver to train climate activists from around the country. You might remember his 2006 documentary on climate change called An Inconvenient Truth.
1: The most vulnerable part of the Earth's ecological system is the atmosphere. Vulnerable because it's so thin. My friend the late Carl Sagan used to say if you had a big globe with a coat of varnish on it, the thickness of that varnish relative to that globe is pretty much the same as the thickness of the Earth's atmosphere compared to the Earth itself. And it's well, that's
0: one way to talk about climate change, but two professors from CU Boulder want to add some levity to this very serious topic. That's the premise of Stand-up for Climate, an experiment with creative climate comedy. The event will feature a range of comedic approaches including stand-up, sketch, and improv. The organizers are a scientist, Max Boykoff, and a thespian, Beth Osnes. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. Thank you, Nathan. So, Beth, how did the idea for this show, which seems pretty outside the box,
2: uh, come about? Well, I think it has its roots in the beginning of theater and the beginning of comedy. That You know, comedy's been taking on serious issues for a long time. You know, in classical Greece, you know, there was Lysistrata, a play that's taking on preposterous ideas for how we can solve big problems like the Peloponnesian War. You know, women having a sex strike, that's a preposterous idea. And we had this introduced, you know, early on in our history of performance and communities using performance. But then over time, these preposterous ideas can get, you know, they can become realities. You know, we have Liberia where women's peaceful resistance stopped a civil war and we had our first democratically elected female president in an African country in Liberia as a result of women doing the same thing they were doing in Lysistrata. So I think through comedy, we can introduce preposterous ideas that then can become realities and can become a better version of our shared humanity.
0: And the idea of climate change for many is such a maybe an abstract kind of idea. How do you bring stand up to that? Or, you know, kind of a slapstick comedy? I mean, I'm trying to figure out how that relates to each other
2: great. So we ask our students to identify where there are incongruities and dig around those incongruities and expose them, but not in a way that really seeks to humiliate, but in a way that really seeks to share, you know, to share our common challenges and our foibles and to help us kind of like uncover these things. And there's a, you know, there's a lot of research they do around this, but then they just infuse things that make it comedic, that really allow us to have a laugh while we're learning and growing and being together in community around this shared concern.
3: And really, yeah, just to add to that, really what we're after here is that we're seeking to make these issues more relevant, more meaningful, more accessible for for more audiences through humor. And so, you know, we've talked about these issues in a variety of ways, scientific ways of knowing as you started at the top. Uh, is, a, is an important way of knowing about these issues, but these experiential, these affective, uh, these aesthetic ways of knowing are also very important. So what we've gotten into here, uh, primarily through the class and with the show coming up in a few weeks, is to try and then provide multiple entry points and new pathways for thinking about acting and engaging with climate change.
0: And this class you're speaking of is called Creative Climate Change Communication. Uh so students are are doing this you know in in class and and figuring out ways to talk about something like this. Mm-hmm.
3: That's right. We have a courageous group of mainly seniors, senior undergraduate students at the University of Colorado and uh you know personally when I was back in in their you know time when I was uh, an undergraduate, I would have been totally freaked out at the prospect <laughs> of taking on this kind of an endeavor. But they have leaned into it, and they're doing a great job getting ready for this.
0: And Now, why is the storytelling aspect that, that Beth brings to the show so important, this this theatrical uh, look at climate change?
2: And it is storytelling, and it's also embodiment. So we really just hmm. started the class out by creating a culture of getting into our bodies and really enjoying the the um, physical expression of things. And that's really the base of comedy. Comedy is closely allied with the body. So we brought that in, and then we really bring in this storytelling aspect. And when you can find the ridiculous bits, we'd love to laugh at things that are ridiculous and that are incongruous. And if we can find those moments and really amplify them and research the heck around them then we can really, like, you know, you look at John Oliver. He's only funny because he's so well-researched, and we trust the information that he's giving us. So if we could do that around an issue like climate change, which really suffers from being able to be communicated effectively. You know, people keep throwing scientific information at people thinking that's going to change their behavior, and we see time and time again that it doesn't. So what are the ways that we're going to really you know, in a creative way, engage with people through the stories, through the emotions, through the shared concerns, through the things that we actually believe in, the things that, like, you know, people protect the things they love. How do we talk about, like, what we love through comedy?
0: And Max, did did it take you a while to, to come on board with this idea because you were a scientist or was it relatively easy?
3: Well... I would say no. It didn't take me very long. I mean, my larger goals and objectives are to meet people where they are in these issues and try try and do work and do research and engage in pro- projects that open up a spectrum of possibility uh, to address 21st century climate change. And so Beth is a colleague, but we're also great friends. And so as she had introduced me to this, the way in which comedy can be an effective vehicle uh, for getting to those places, I was quickly on board. I mean, I've studied how media have covered climate change over time, and there is this there's this danger that they can be seen as the same old stories. They can be seen as too much doom and gloom, too much psychological duress that makes people switch off. The social scientific research is very consistent that that this can serve to alienate the very people that we're looking to engage. And so Beth has helped me to quickly come to realize that comedy provides these new avenues for refreshed and effective engagement.
0: There's also a, a short video competition that's that's part of this, isn't that correct?
3: Mm-hmm. So, that's right. And this...
0: What, this are you, what are you looking for, I guess, in those videos? What would be an ideal comedy video about climate change?
3: Yeah, well, what we love about the the contest is that people are surprising us all the time with their interpretation of that call. Yeah. And so in looking to find the funny... But then also in looking, you know, we recognize that that there are risks in potentially trivializing and distracting from an important issue. And everyone that has been involved in this is, uh, you know, taking this issue very seriously. The video part we just had our uh, we just had our deadline passed this week. We've gotten uh, about 18 entries. That's actually uh, co-sponsored by the Center of the American West. So Patty Limerick, who's on campus, and her colleagues, we've come together. To draw in people, we've gotten submissions from five different countries, and um, we're going to be deciding on the winners this upcoming week and showing those winning entries at the show on the 17th. You're with Colorado
0: Matters from CPR News. We're talking with Beth Ostness and Max Boykoff, the producers of Stand Up for Climate, an experiment with creative climate comedy that's being held March 17th on the campus of the University of Colorado Boulder. Uh, This is the second year of the show, and last year, Beth, you did a bit of stand-up for uh, the show. I want to hear a clip of that.
2: Hey, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Thanks for having me here. Thanks, thanks, thanks. My name is Climate Change, and I am pretty
4: excited.
2: I just signed up for this new dating service for social issues. It's called Cupid Cares. Yeah, they're supposed to be pretty good. They match people with social issues. Who do you think matched Bono with human rights? Bill Gates and malaria? Cupid cares. So I thought maybe they could find a match for me too. Okay, wait. I see a few confused faces out there in the crowd. Oh my God. Do you guys think I'm still hooked up with Al Gore? Okay, with all due respect to Mr. Gore, allow me to say that I ended our monogamous relationship a long time ago.
0: You're a thespian, Beth, Uh, and Mm -hmm. so you've been on stage, and you mentioned that the Uh students maybe are a little bit apprehensive to do this, or are they raring to go and ready to get on stage and really uh, talk about this issue?
2: Well, we didn't hand them a blank slate. We (laughs) handed them a bunch of different ideas that they could kind of glom onto and then deviate from and try to figure out. So, you know, we hand them an idea like, you know, like looking at how many people are actually right now dying of climate change impact and how many people are actually dying of shark bites. And we have the idea that a student could be standing on the stage in a costume where they're actually being ingested by a shark at that time. So they're like up to their chest in shark and they're actually giving a lecture on the the you know comparing the risks involved in shark bites and that people have really strong feelings about not wanting to be attacked by a shark and when they're at the beach they'll take great measures not to be ingested but with climate change which is actually a much more real threat people aren't doing things they aren't making the behavior changes they should so this is a way that you can like you know, like so that if you give people a setup like that then they can go oh i can work with this and they might not even end up doing that idea but you started them off you haven't just handed them a, a blank blank white canvas which is a terrifying thing
0: Max, is this for everyone? Is this type of comedy for everyone? Are you, or you, are you? Who are you really looking at here for this type of uh, this type
3: of performance? It's a good question. You know, we talk about audience consistently throughout this process. I don't think we will reach everyone, but we will reach a new segment that otherwise may not engage with these issues as they're presented usually in other ways. Um, and so, as we reach new crowds, as we engage with different important segments of society, we recognize that we're all collectively a part of both the challenge of climate change and a part of the solutions that will emerge. Has there been pushback from, um, I'm sorry, continue. Oh, sorry.
2: No. I think that people are, have pre, like they have pre-established defenses against messages around climate. And by having it come through comedy, it's like we're sneaking in through the basement window. You know, we're getting around and like getting in there with, with new challenges, new Prompts new invitations to start thinking about their behavior around climate.
0: Well, have there been pushbacks? Like I was, I was going to ask before, where people are like, you know,
3: I, I think the science is, is, we should stick with that as opposed to making it a laughing mm-hmm. matter. I think there's always going to be pushback with whatever we do Mm. um, and whenever we're taking risks and whenever we're in this experimental space. I mean, this is part of a larger project. Uh, Beth and I work with Rebecca Saffron, who's a professor in ecology and evolutionary biology on campus. And this larger project inside the greenhouse is to experiment with students and with others, to effectively meet people where they are, to build capacity in these creative communications, to be interdisciplinary and to be innovative. And whenever you're taking those risks, there is always pushback, sure.
2: But there's also the potential for high payoff, you know, with great risks come the chance to really break through something, you know, to have something, have people connect on it. When, you, when you're when you with a crowd that's all laughing together, there's an aspect of your humanity that's being shared, that can really change you and can coalesce a movement. And, you know, like we're a part of a community. If our community can come together and laugh about this and start to see our own hypocrisies, there's a lot of pieces that are making fun of boulderites. Who doesn't love to make fun of boulderites, you know, for their (laughs) hypocrisies? You know, like, I'm going to fly to a yoga, you know, yoga institute in India with a carbon footprint of, you know, pretty high. And then I'm going to be a vegan to, you know, like, that's fun. That's great fodder for comedy.
0: Yeah, on March 17th, this is when this event takes place. It's uh, St. Patrick's Day.
3: Is yeah. that a coincidence? Yes.
2: <laughs> it helps. <laughs> well, Let's just say.
3: last year it was a coincidence, and this year it's very deliberate. It tended <laughs> to work out really well last year. Now, a long why? History. why deliberate? Okay, well, there's a long history. We just <laughs> need to go back to Greeks
2: again. You know, the god of Dionysus is the god of theater and the god of wine, They go together. We need to loosen inhibitions. We are not advocating or encouraging our students to to drink. But there's an association that comes in. There's a looseness. There's a, a loosening of the regular social conventions that happen on holidays that are associated with revelry. And that's part of comedy. That's like a long history of where comedy fits in. You know, it always has a happy ending. It ends in a celebration or a wedding or a feast of some sort. And we wanted to bring that spirit and that feeling to our event. Beth, Max, thanks so much for being here. Thank, Thank you, you so much.
0: Beth Ostness and Max Boykoff are professors at the University of Colorado Boulder and producers of the March 17th show Stand Up for Climate, an experiment with creative climate comedy, which will take place at the Old Main Chapel on the CU Boulder campus. If you have a climate joke or think one up, share it with us on Twitter at Colorado Matters or email us news at CPR.org. We may just share it on the air. Up next, what place means to Latinos in America today. It's the subject of a new show at the Denver Art Museum. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. In Spanish, the word tierra can mean earth, motherland, and soil. Mi Tiara, My Land is a new exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. It features the works of 13 Latino artists. Rebecca Hart is the curator of Mi Tiara.
5: place often is a type of identity.
2: There is a locale where you're from. There's a locale you might be going to. Um, some of the artists in the exhibition have experiences with undocumented relatives, or they came here undocumented themselves. What I see so much is a nostalgia. It's a looking back. And sometimes it's a looking back with great pain. A uh, lot, of, lot of sacrifice that happens when people come to America.
0: Two of the artists are Jaime Correjo and Dimitri Obergfell. Both live in Denver. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Thanks for you. having us. May. your piece called One Way Mirror is an installation of a 10-foot high reflective barrier that divides a corner of the gallery. On either side, videos of natural landscapes are projected on the walls. It's meant to represent uh, the border wall with the U.S. on one side and Mexico on the other. Uh, you can see photos of this at CPRnews.org.
6: Can you, can you get us inside this piece? Tell us a bit more about it. Uh, Yeah, so when I came to this project, I was kind of thinking about this idea of duality, um, what it means to be a citizen and where you come from. Um, And so with that, I was kind of sort of playing with the idea of the complexity of what it means to be a United States citizen. Um, And sometimes I think it's really easy to set up an us versus them um, mentality. And really, when we talk about culture and human identity, it's more of a mixing of many different things. So I wanted that mirrored wall to sort of punctuate that idea of the complexity of citizenship. And where did you collect the footage for the landscapes? Uh, We spent about six days at the U.S.-Mexico border um, back home in El Paso. So we actually went to the border wall, scattered out a couple of locations, um, and then found one between El Paso um, and this area in New Mexico. So we went out there to the border wall, um, worked with Border Patrol, and actually filmed over the border into into Mexico and then again into the United States at that location.
0: And how does this work then connect with, with this exhibit at the Denver Art Museum?
6: Um, well with me I mean we spend a lot of time talking about place and Becky had mentioned it in her introduction and and it's really much at the core of it Um, I think place is really complicated and place is also really defined by how we define ourselves Um, I was having this conversation with this person um, online and they had said well um, to know thyself you have to know others Um, and I said well yes to know others you also have to know yourself Um, and in, in that sort of respect I think it's important that when we talk about place or looking at identity or border issues um, that we realize that it's really easy to get wrapped up in the I have to be right mentality. And then it's more about um, having that conversation, open dialogue so that we can better understand each other. And you grew up along the border wall. El Paso's right right there. H- how has that defined place for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, El Paso sort of kind of flows throughout my entire work. I, mm. I can't get away from it. Um, it's sort mm. of embedded in, in sort of my psyche. Um, and when I think about place, like my, my parents, um, they were in the United States, but my grandparents are all pretty much immigrants. So um, it's an interesting to look at what that looks like in terms of the sacrifices that people make um, to sort of uh, encapsulate this idea of the American dream. Um, and you know, that's sort of the core of what we're trying to all get to, like what is that American dream? Um, is it something that is accessible? Does it really exist as a construct? Um, but I think it's something we're all trying to um, understand, especially in this p- current political climate.
0: Now, Dimitri, your piece is called Federal Fashion Mart, and it looks a little bit like a store. Yeah, Uh, You walk inside, it's brightly lit with fluorescent lights and has a rack of T-shirts and large speakers. Bring us inside of that piece.
7: (laughs) Yeah, so uh, for my piece, I was really interested in these markets uh, like along Federal Boulevard between Colfax and Alameda, uh, as well as markets in Mexico City. Um, For me, I was interested in these markets because... um, the My installation is about kind of dealing with like my estranged father and then kind of my relationship to uh latino culture uh kind of dealing with it on the perimeter uh, because my father is estranged so mm-hmm. with these markets, I was kind of interested in them because they're kind of like purveyors of identity and the culture uh, so it was a way for me to kind of like get into the culture a little bit, so I used that kind of model to kind of explain uh, that relationship to being Latino and my relationship to my father as well.
0: And and, and that then connects with your idea of home and, and place and, and things like that?
7: Yeah. So, I mean, it's a pretty, like, multifaceted space. Uh, so when you enter it, you have, like, a T-shirt rack as well as, like, some sculptures and a painting. Uh, so it's like a space that I kind of want the viewer to go in and kind of, like, leaf through, like, the T-shirts uh, with their eyes not touching uh, and just kind of, like, put together, like, everything because, you know, the T-shirts kind of tell a story of, you know, how I came to be, how my father came to the United States uh, and, you know, a little bit of the mythology of what I know about him.
0: And you designed one of those T-shirts yourself, right?
7: Uh, I designed about five of okay. them. So the T-shirts are like a mixture of uh, sort of, like, ready-made objects that I got from the markets uh, on 8th and Federal, and then shirts that I designed that, like I said, kind of tell the story of of my identity a little bit.
0: Have that meaning. Uh, yep. you, you say in the description that these markets, quote, provide access to a culture that has been largely omitted from my past yep. and are a way for me to explore how I identify with my own relationship to being Latino.
7: What do you think? Yeah. Uh, You know, kind of what I stated earlier, uh, just because my father was estranged, uh, he's a Mexican national, he came to the US uh, illegally. um, And I think that that was like part of the reason why he became estranged. So uh, because I wasn't like, you know, day to day in this culture, you know, left a lot of question marks. So uh, having access to these spaces kind of uh, keyed me into certain aspects of it, of the culture.
0: And that's what you're hoping that these these people who visit are, are they're having their own experience as well with this this piece of art.
7: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that uh, you know these these markets are kind of like living museums in a lot of ways, just because of the merchandise that they sell. You know, I think it's pretty unique to a lot of other commercial experiences. So uh, I wanted to kind of touch on my identity as well as uh, what these experiences are like going into these uh, markets. The
0: exhibition says it's an exploration of place. Uh, Jaime, why do you think
6: place is so important to Latino Americans? Well, um, especially right now, I think a lot of people are are there people that are fr- afraid out there, especially people who are immigrants, who might be here illegally, um, but may have been in the country for a long period of time. Um, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, especially with the rhetoric that sometimes flows through um, our political system. And um, some of it, I think, is just rhetoric, rhetoric and some of it may not be. And um, how does one sort of uh, navigate those like, conflicts? Um, and so when we talk to start to think about plays, I mean, everybody wants to belong in some sort of con- uh, of community. Um, and it becomes really difficult when I think people sometimes feel like they're outsiders. So uh, how do you respond to the uh, the idea of being an outsider? What makes somebody an insider?
0: This exhibition has been in the works for over a year. Uh, but as you say, recent uh, news of changed immigration policy and deportation. D- Dimitri, do you think there's now a political lens to this exhibit that maybe wasn't there before when you were designing it?
7: Um, I would say that it's maybe more emphasized. I think that uh, just the nature of of sort of like immigrating to the U.S. and, and living in a foreign country has its own sort of political uh, environment or landscape to deal with. But uh, definitely current events have, have definitely heightened that experience. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News.
0: We're speaking with Jaime Carrejo and Dimitri Obergfell, two local artists in the Denver Art Museum's new exhibition, Mi Tierra, which means My Land in Spanish. Many of the 13 artists were born in Mexico, one lives there. Did you find a lot of common ground with that in what your pieces addressed? Were there similar themes?
6: Uh, I would say uh, there are some similar themes but what was so great about this exhibition is it's such a broad context for place like uh, my definition of it is probably very different than Dimitri's and um, something that might be different from Gabriel Dawes and uh, it's really a a beautiful place to talk about that complexity Um, and the the breadth of work is just so different so you can sort of enter it um, from many different types of locales uh, which also kind of breeds a bunch of different types of discussions um, which I think is really the goal of, of understanding place.
7: Yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that was really exciting to see uh, as the exhibition kind of came together was to see like all of these different interpretations of it. And and Jaime, the museum allowed people to actually see installation of
0: this show. Uh, They said they wanted visitors to engage with the artist. Did you get to do any of that at all while while you were putting together your... Your your piece? Oh
6: yeah, it's it totally fun. So uh, you have people coming in asking questions about what's going on or what type of work people are making, and uh, there's a curiosity I think that gets sparked, especially when you don't get to see behind the curtain. That doesn't Usually, seem to be
0: to happen very often. Mm-hmm. And you get to let the public in while you're putting this stuff together.
6: Yeah, and and I think that's a, a great asset. I hope the down continues to do that practice because um, you know it's so amazing to see all the hard work that goes into putting together these these exhibitions. It's not just the artist's work, but it's also the work of the people who care for it. Um, there's a lot of energy goes into building them.
0: And I want to continue talking about the narrative here that uh, this exhibition, when one walks in, what do you think the narrative will be for them as they move through and see each piece and, and really uh, connect with what you all are, are, are trying to say through your work?
7: Uh, I mean, I think that if anything, it'll just really speak to the idea that there's a lot of diverse experiences with this uh, subject. And I think that, you know, it might offer, like Jaime sort of said, it might offer like an a a chance for people to sort of relate to the artist in this ex, in this exhibition.
0: And and do people if you whether whether are seeing these pieces, do they ask you questions? Maybe, you know, what did they ask you? What do they want to know? And and did that surprise you?
6: Um actually we had lots of conversations in the opening night, more than I think I was prepared to handle. It was it was pretty amazing. Um the discussions around the border wall, I think it, it just sort of gave um, punctuation that people are, are concerned about it or curious about it or need some more clarity about what it means. And uh, I th- it's really what I wanted for the work is to create um, a dialogue between people who maybe have different opposing views um, to maybe uh, better understand one another. And uh, I think the works can do that in that space. And I think they do it really well.
0: The exhibition uh makes a narrative, they say, quote, the complexities of what it is to be Latino in today's America, the complexities. Uh, You both have mentioned that. How do you think your piece uh, adds to that story, Dimitri?
7: Uh, I mean, I think that, you know, from my point of view, uh, that it's a pretty unique experience. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of people in my specific position, obviously, um, and I think that like a lot of people, when they see me or hear my name, they not might not sort of say like you know he's Latino like mm. on the, on the outset. But uh, something that was really nice about this exhibition is it provided me the opportunity to sort of explore this personal narrative.
0: Now, both of your pieces are, are are rather large and they're they're interactive, I guess. Are there other types of work there that 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 people can experience besides let's say a video installation or or going inside kind of a store that you 've created
6: uh, yeah, there's a huge amount uh, of diversity in the work, so there are installations. Um, Mikey Brodow. Like I said earlier, um, he did this massive installation with really colorful strings. They remind me of zarape, sort of a deconstructed zarape, but also um, um, a reference, a spectrum of light that emit from the w- window in which it's installed. And uh, there's p- paintings that are created as well, but um, none of it is in the ex- nothing in the exhibition. I think is traditional by any means. Huh.
0: Now, why do you think that is?
6: Uh,
7: I mean, I think part of it might just be contemporary art practices. I think that there's kind of an explosion of, of, of traditional mediums. And I think the artists are looking to maybe everyday objects to kind of explain uh, experiences or whatever it is they want to talk about in art. So I think that, you know, objects in experiential sort of settings are kind of exploded to, to further display like these situations.
0: Thanks to the both of you for being here. Thank you. Thanks. I it. Mi Tierra is the new exhibition at the Denver Art Museum. It features 13 Latino artists. We spoke with two from Denver Jaime Carrejo and Dimitri Obergfell. The exhibition is open through October. You can see the pieces at cprnews.org, including that prism of light made out of thread. This is Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Nathan Heffel. Ice skating was Yvonne Dowlin's life. She performed with the Ice Capades in the 30s, taught figure skating in Denver for years, and she refused to retire. At the age of 90, she still skated five times a week.
5: Somebody said, well, how can, how can you skate so well? You, you tipple when you walk. Well, I tipple when I walk, but I don't have edges on my shoes. I have edges on my skates, and I can skate on my skates, so I don't fall down very much.
0: Dowlin passed away last May, where she felt most at home, on the ice. She's the subject of a new short documentary called Edges, which screens at the Boulder International Film Festival this weekend. Katie Sternholm of Boulder is one of the filmmakers, and Brett Dowlin is Yvonne's son. He lives in Lakewood and joins us by phone. Welcome to you both.
4: Thanks so much. Thank you. Uh,
0: Brett, what was it like watching your mom skate when you were a kid?
1: Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. She uh, had the ability to pretty much make it look like you're just floating down the ice. She, she would uh, she would just kind of move her legs and poof, she'd be at the other end of the ice rink. Watching her ice dance was a pretty amazing thing.
0: Your mother learned to skate in Evergreen, Colorado, isn't that correct?
1: Uh, yes, among other places. But she and her family, um, her mom and her dad and her sister, all went to Evergreen Lake to skate when you could in the winter when it was frozen.
8: And
0: this was during the Great Depression, I was told.
1: Yes. She was born in 1925. And
0: so why skating? What was the reason for for
6: that?
1: I don't know. I would guess it's just the same question as why tennis, if that's what (laughs) what grabs you in life. But for her, it was ice skating. And uh, she was good at it. She was very good at it.
0: And your parents taught you and your sister and uh yep. sherry had a skate what's one of your favorite memories of skating with your entire family
1: um you know probably the best day i ever had on the ice was in evergreen on the lake um it, in my very young life used to be able to skate the entire lake and even up to the dam where it, it fall, the water would fall over there at the end of it um that was pretty amazing the sun on the on the ice the and the uh being be able to see the mountains and so forth around, it was just, it was pretty incredible.
0: And Katie, I understand you learned about Yvonne and her skating career after reading an article she was mentioned in. What was it about her story that sparked your interest in creating a documentary about her?
4: So I think I've always had kind of a soft spot for capturing the stories of elders. I think in a lot of ways, people in my generation are kind of documenting everything in their lives. And I think for me to see people in their 80s and 90s who are still really thriving and have great quality of life and mental health and attitude for me is just really inspiring. So I was sent an article about 10 people kind of who were still quite active in their 80s and 90s. And Yvonne was number 10 and she was in Lakewood here in Denver. And so being based in Boulder, I said, I need to track her down. So, you know, 90 year olds don't tend to have much of a digital footprint. So I actually got in touch with Brett, I think, I believe through LinkedIn and kind of said, I'd love to get to know your mom and just meet her. And kind of from the instant, the moment I met her, I just kind of instantly was enamored and just captivated by her spirit.
0: And Brett, what did you think of this idea of a documentary about your mom? Um,
1: I was a little cautious at
4: first. (laughs) I made arrangements
1: to meet Katie and John for lunch and and decide, you know, is this really a good idea for my mom? Because, you know, there are some scams out there on older folks and so forth. Although once I met Katie and John, I realized it was a, a very honest interest in her
0: career. And John um, also helped produce this this documentary.
4: Yes, so Jonathan Hiller was the DP and editor and the co-founder of Balcony United Media. So this whole project was really kind of a crew of two, labor of love, passion project.
0: And I should say, Brett, you run a production company in Denver, and you actually helped light an important scene in the film. The whole film seems to build up to this moment of your mother skating on the ice, and she's alone uh, uh, in the ring. Can you describe that scene?
1: Um, yeah, it was... Shot at Apex Ice Arena where she spent a good deal of her time ice skating. They were um very gracious to her. I, I have to thank the staff there because, you know, at 90 and in a litigious society that we live in, how many ice arenas would l- allow you to skate at that age? Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a fair amount of risk in that. I, maybe not with my mother because basically that was where she was most stable, but. Uh, lighting the rink was fun. You know, we drug all this stuff in. I had my guys come in and help. Uh, you know, they were all interested in the project, so we put up several towers. And they the thing. And my they lighting st- designer, Todd, for that.
0: And they stood around, and they watched your mother ice skate.
1: Yep, they and did. They were, this is your mom? And I go, yep, <laughs> that's what she does.
0: <laughs> Katie, what struck you about uh, Yvonne the first time that you met her?
4: You know, so many things, but I think for one was just kind of her commitment and her just kind of unwavering like decision to just skate every day and really like kind of committing to this passion of yours really accumulates to a life well lived. And just the fact that she was still competing, um, she never really complained physically. And even if she did, she was still going out on the ice. And um, yeah, I just and she was so just kind of nonchalant about it. very Matter
0: of fact, like this is what I'm doing today. (laughs) I'm going to go and ice skate.
4: Yeah. Exactly. And I think just partially because of just some of her physical limitations, when you do see her off the ice, you know, she was a bit shaky. She wasn't always feeling so stable on her feet. And once she kind of laced up her stick and got out on the ice, it was just amazing kind of the transformation. And as someone who had, gone, you know, survived a stroke and some of these other kind of physical obstacles, for me, I would just kind of marvel at her ability to revert um, and just be at home on the ice.
0: And and you talk about that in the in the documentary uh, Yvonne was in a car crash when she was eighty, and she suffered a brain injury. Then several years ago, uh, I want to play this clip. This is what happened.
5: I was downstairs, and I, I was trying to pour myself a cup of coffee. And I poured the coffee, and I, I couldn't drink it. And I, I went upstairs, and I said, "Sherry, I, I was trying to say, I can't, I can't drink my coffee. I can't, I can't. My mouth won't work." And so she looked at me, and she said. Get dressed. We're going to the hospital. You're having a stroke.
0: And each time doctors told her she couldn't skate anymore, but, Brett, she clearly ignored their advice,
1: right? Uh, Pretty much, unless she agreed with what you had to say, she didn't listen to it.
0: <laughs> I mean, did it take her a while to get back on on the rink after that, or, or was it pretty pretty quick?
1: Um, my sister deserves a lot of the credit for getting her back on the ice after the stroke. The car crash wasn't actually quite as debilitating. The car crash was more physically banged up, and once she got through some of the muscle soreness and that sort of thing, she was able to get back out there. But my sister really worked with her very hard and very long to get, um, mom back up and running on the ice after the stroke, because that's... Uh, you know a, a a motor disconnect kind of a thing at, at at one point, and so you're really you're retraining your brain to move your legs the way you used to know they would move automatically for her at least she didn't really think about ice skating; she just got out there and stroked and did all of her you know jumps and spins and she was still spinning and jumping even at ninety so it's uh it was an amazing amazing recovery from something that a lot of people never get back from
0: you're with colorado matters from cpr news and i'm speaking with katie sternholm of boulder her film is called edges and it features yvonne Dowlin, who had a passion for ice skating and continued to skate five times a week at the age of 90 also joining me is is Dowlin's son brett uh yvonne passed away last may just several days after the documentary was finished uh did she get to see the film katie
4: So, yeah, initially we had I had spoken to her on Friday and we on a Friday and we locked the picture on Saturday because we had a really tight deadline for our premiere at Mountain Film and Telluride. And so we were scheduled to show her the film on the following Tuesday. And Monday is actually when she passed away on the ice. So she never got to see the film. And in a lot of ways, as a filmmaker, that was heartbreaking for us. Um, At the same time, the project really morphed into more of this legacy piece. We worked with Brett and Sherry, and we first showed it to an audience at her memorial service. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of become this beautiful tribute that she did pass away last May. But traveling on the festival circuit, I really feel like now people can still get to know her through this project. So it's kind of taken on a whole new meaning which has been really special
0: and brett how did it feel to know that your mother passed away doing what she loved she she died from an aneurysm uh, on the ice practicing for another competition
1: absolutely the best last day she could have had
0: that's that's exactly it's you know that that time that she spent on the ice
4: In one interview um, Yvonne had told me you know I either want to go out in my sleep or in my skates and I just um, it was really you know sad to have that happen and at the same time I don't think she would have had it any other way.
5: And
0: it seems like Yvonne didn't take much for granted especially skating. Listen to this.
5: What you do with your life and what you find enjoyable with your life is up to you. And I I think it's wonderful if you can follow things that you like to do in your life. I like waking up in the morning because I know I have another day.
0: When you interviewed Yvonne for the film Katie, how did she look back on her life?
4: You know, I think it's really interesting because someone who's lived 90 years, I think, you know, you have such a dense experience and there's so much. And so I actually was really fascinated by how much Yvonne kind of downplayed a lot of her like accomplishments and achievements. She was quite a starlet in The Ice Capades and she had been in Hollywood Motion Pictures. And in the interview, it just kind of like she glossed over it. It was kind of like, no, this is just what I love doing. And then I got all of her photo albums and her old film reels and was like, wow you were a really big deal but I just um, what was what struck me is just her humility and her just love of the sport beyond kind of any of the semantics that you could have really latched onto and um, yeah I just loved her willingness to kind of share her perspective and her insight which for her was quite just simple it's just do what you love and she didn't ever want to be like preachy she loved teaching ice skating but she didn't necessarily care if other people liked to skate but that was just what she loved to do and I, I loved that about her
0: and, and, Brett, what do you want people to know about your mother?
1: Um, well, she absolutely was dedicated to the sport of ice skating. She was one of the first women to pass her bronze ice dancing tests and her uh, some of her advanced uh, patch and figure skating tests that they had. Um, it wasn't really, you know, it wasn't a widely participated in sport at that time. Um, It's certainly gotten a lot more momentum since, but um, I think she really, really enjoyed the sport, and she was certainly the best um, emissary for it that I could think of. Um, She was really good at it and really dedicated to it.
0: Now, is there a memory of of your mother... Off the ice, that that you want to share with people to give an idea of of who she is.
1: Well, I guess to give you some idea of her, like her refusal to to give in to life. She wanted to go trim the trim some trees in the backyard at about eighty something years old. So she got out the saw and started oh. trimming away the <laughs> uh, limbs and so forth. Managed to cut her arms and so forth as they were falling and. Gee, that didn't even stop her from doing that again. So she really didn't take no for an answer. I think that was the answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And I'm assuming you heard the same thing, Katie.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it was just... A lot of times I would go kind of stop by her house to visit or see her before the rink. We only filmed in two production days, but I was fortunate to s- spend a lot of time with her. And she would say something, you know, oh, my hip is sore or something. And I'd say, well, you, are you skipping the rink today? And she'd just look at me like I was crazy, like, no, I'm on my way. And I, I loved that.
0: Thank you both for sharing Yvonne's story.
4: Thanks for having us.
1: Yeah, thank you.
0: That's Brett Dowland of Lakewood. His mother, Yvonne, is the subject of a new short documentary called Edges. Katie Sternholm is one of the filmmakers behind the project. It screens at the Boulder International Film Festival this weekend. You listen to our stories, and we listen to your feedback, in Loud and Clear. Last week, the White House announced it would roll back an Obama-era directive. This guidance told public schools to let transgender students use the bathroom and locker room that matches their gender identity. The Trump White House says it was revoking the guidance because of legal confusion, and it felt this is a states' rights issue. We hosted a debate on Colorado Matters about the move and what it could mean for Colorado schools. I spoke with Daniel Ramos of the LGBTQ Advocacy Group One Colorado and Jeff Hunt of Colorado Christian University. When the Obama administration clarified that transgender students were protected under Title IX, CCU was one of more than 200 faith based schools to file for an exemption. Listener Suzanne Gamble of Denver felt the conversation was well moderated and brought different perspectives to the table, but she says it bothered her that Hunt bases his views on his faith.
8: I'm a Christian and I firmly believe each of us is a child of God. So I I didn't like that I walked away from that story feeling like if you're a Christian, you have to have this point of view, and I don't believe that that is a Christian viewpoint.
0: Reverend Bradley Lorvik, a Methodist pastor in Denver, also took issue with Hunt's comments, particularly the phrase Christian perspective.
8: In a Christian perspective, there are only two genders, he said. I hate take very big issue with this. I have a Christian perspective as
0: well, and I definitely respect and create space for gender identities other than my own as a cisgender person, and it's troubling to hear someone not recognize that they are but one perspective when it would be very fair him for him to say in my Christian perspective or in
8: Colorado Christian University's Christian perspective.
0: Tara E. Scott, a gender therapist in Boulder, also reached out. She found some of Hunt's language offensive, emailing, quote, I know you're trying to foster an open debate, but allowing religion to pollute it makes me livid. And PR is one place I should not be hearing this unbridled hate masquerading as a reasonable position. And Christy Canada of Denver thought we ought to have included intersex students in the discussion. In Loud and Clear, we also update you on stories. Last week, we met a competitor in the National Ethics Bowl. The Colorado School of Mines in Golden sent a team to the event. Students must analyze and respond to an ethical dilemma, like does a bartender have the right to refuse alcohol to a woman who appears pregnant? Well, the results are in, and the Mines team placed 13th of 37 teams. The winner, the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. And finally, CPR News is reporting on specific ways Coloradans expect to be affected by the policies of the Trump administration. What's an aspect of your life where President Trump could help you or set you back? Is there something he's promised that you were counting on or that will hurt you? To share, call the number I'm about to give you. And I'll repeat it, so 720-358-4029. Again, that's 720-358-4029. And leave us a comment. And finally today, Jux County has a long history in the Denver music scene. The country punk band first formed in 1986 and is opened for national acts such as Nirvana, Alanis Morissette, and the Dandy Warhols. The band recently released its first full-length album in 15 years. Here's the title track, Choral, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. Well, it's
8: all in the- Short and sweet and a long. And there's no right or wrong Just piece by piece by piece Until we're gone In a fantasy Just a finger grip on reality Sweet insanity, yeah, i all coming back to me. Pilots ah, live in the sky.
0: Jux County and their track, and we'll Choral, recorded in the CPR Performance Studio. Thanks to audio engineer Michael Hughes and director Stephanie Wolf, I'm Nathan Heffel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. We'll
8: rise in the day